questions, and that was really, really uh, fantastic. I missed that one. I was away, so I was sorry to miss this. Tonight we have Marie, who's come from Oxford. Uh, Marie, it's so good to have you. We thank you for coming up here from Oxford on uh, this night. So should we give her a big round of applause? <laughs> Do come up. Marie, uh, you have an... Armenian father, you've lived in Russia, you've been in America, you're now in Oxford, so it's sounding intriguing. Yeah, that's, that's a good summary, I guess. <laughs> good. And what are you speaking on this evening? I'm speaking on the exciting topic of science and religion and uh, the perceived conflict between the two. Uh, I'm saying perceived, sort of stressing that because there is, there is a lot to discuss here. Wonderful. Well, over to you. Look okay. forward to it. <laughs> Great. Well, um, hello everyone. Hi. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I love when people talk to me. Uh, I actually hate talking at people. I love talking to people. So um, we'll be having a bit of a discussion tonight. Um, do definitely save your questions because we'll have a um, long Q&A time uh, later this evening. But during the conversation, I would also like you to sort of kind of uh, just... Don't be shy, you know, um, suggest your ideas. So as, as Mike has already said, I hail from Russia originally. Um, I promise you I'm not a Russian spy, although that's probably what any Russian spy would say anyway, so that doesn't really help, right? Doesn't sound convincing. Um, why am I here tonight? Why am I speaking on this topic? Uh, again, as Mike has already said, I'm currently working for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. I'm based in Oxford, working for the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. How many of you know what apologetics is about? Yay, there are some people. Well, um, <laughs> that's really cool, because a lot of people I meet these days think that uh, what I do is uh, go around um, the country apologizing for being a Christian. That's not what apologetics is really about. Apologetics is uh, more about engaging with people's questions, engaging with the questions our culture is asking, and of course, the question of has science actually buried God is definitely a question worth engaging with. So many people today think that it's not even a question, it's more of a statement, right? So uh, we're going to be engaging with this tonight. What uh, allows me to speak on this topic in, in some sense is that I actually have some background in both science and religion, obviously, um, as since I'm a Christian, kind of that satisfies probably the second condition. Uh, in terms of science, my background is in cognitive science, so um, more specifically, uh, I've been studying psycholinguistics, which makes me a psycho linguist, which is really cool. Uh, I'm kind of collecting all these weird job titles, which makes people roll their eyes as, as they hear my introductions. Uh, but th this is what I've been doing, kind of studying neuroscience and cognitive science in Russia, then in the United States a little bit here. And then I came to Oxford to study theology. And actually, right now, I'm engaging uh, with some graduate-level work on specifically science and religion. So we're going to have some fun discussing those topics tonight. Now. The way I would like to start and I guess sort of um, introduce the question is by quoting Immanuel Kant, who famously said that it is the starry skies above and the moral law within that always makes him think about creator, right? The starry skies above. So let's, let's focus on those starry skies. Let me ask you my first question, right? Since you'll have your time of asking questions, now is my time of asking questions. So how many stars are there in the universe? Does anyone know? A lot. <laughs> That's a very good answer. 
Okay. Any guess? Okay, if, if I give you the number, will you be able to tell me the number of zeros? If I say there is one trillion billion stars, well, approximately, I haven't really counted, one trillion billion stars, any guesses in terms of how many zeros that is? Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay, more than 18, less than 200. <laughs> Somebody said 20? Up? Up it a little bit. <laughs> 27. One with 27 zeros after it. Isn't that impressive? I think it's pretty impressive. Um, and uh, last Christmas, I got a little bit of time uh, around the, the Christmas end of the break. So I, I was thinking how to spend it productively. <laughs> and I was like, ah, I don't really want to spend it productively. I'm just want to do something that I would enjoy. So I decided to read through all of the Chronicles of Narnia again, sort of just kind of refresh my childhood memories, which was a lot of fun, um, a lot of kind of interesting insights I got from, from this reading. And there was one particular line, which you probably might remember from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Eustace is meeting Ramandu. Remember that character? The fallen star, right? And Eustace is sort of uh, asking about stars, and, and, and then he looks at Ramon and he says, in our world, in our world, stars are a flaming ball of gas, right? A flaming ball of gas. And then Ramon looks at him and says, even in your world, that's not what stars are. That's what they are made of. That's what they're made of. So I like how <laughs> quiet you all got now. <laughs> Sounds very profound, I know. Just let this stay with you through our talk, through our conversation, through our chat. I would like this idea to stay with us throughout the entire conversation. The reason for it is because there, there is actually a very profound thing that C.S. Lewis is raising here. The nature of reality. The nature of reality. As we look around ourselves, of course stars are a part of that reality, right? How do we interpret this reality? How do we come to this reality? What are the questions we ask of this reality and what are the answers we're getting? Now, a lot of people would say that as science and religion are approaching reality, they're actually asking same questions and getting very different answers. Therefore, there is this irreconcilable conflict between the two. Now, I'm going to challenge this idea. First time I personally started kind of really engaging in a serious way was actually when I was um, in the United States. And a lot of people in my neuroscience lab would say, well, Marie, surely, surely you cannot be a scientist and a Christian. Anyone has had that experience before? <laughs> Any scientists in the room? Yeah. <laughs> Surely. That, that always starts with this, surely. <laughs> that was pretty annoying, because that seemed very patronizing. Uh, so I kind of started trying to sort of engage with that in a more serious way. The ironic thing about that was that um, I also had a lot of classes in humanities department. So as I would be taking my philosophy classes, a lot of people would discuss the reality and possibility of God there. And then I would cross the road into my kind of brain and cognitive science department, and immediately that surely would come out and people would say, well, surely. So I just wanted to kind of challenge that presupposition. And the way I'm going to challenge it is by, well, maybe drawing a bigger picture, right? Because oftentimes we sort of focus on one thing so much that we forget that there is a bigger picture, that there are more 
more views on something and there are more approaches to something, okay? Are you with me? Cool, we're gonna have an exciting adventure now. Um, there are at least four different approaches to the question how science and religion relate to each other, at least four. And we're gonna go through these four, the sort of umbrella four, and I'm gonna draw some pictures because everyone likes pictures and pictures are fun. And we're gonna try to sort of uh, summarize these together. Well, since I already started talking about this idea of conflict, why don't we start with this one, right? Um, is everything okay with my mic? Can I, can, okay, good. So, if this is science, very comprehensive, right? <laughs> and this is faith. You can't see. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> it's, it's not much to see, really, <laughs> but <laughs> to be honest. If this is science, can you see now? Good. And this is faith. The first model, which is the conflict model, would say, you know what? They are actually asking the same questions, getting different answers. Therefore, no friendship can ever exist here. Um, Professor Richard Dawkins, um, my wonderful neighbor at the University of Oxford, once said a beautiful thing. He said, well, I personally see science and faith as competing explanations for the nature of truth and reality. Competing explanations, right? Does that make sense? They're competing because they're sort of approaching one of the same thing, asking same questions, getting different answers, therefore. Now, a lot of that sort of new atheist rhetoric today around the question of science and religion, and I'm sure a lot of you are aware of what's going on in, in that sort of literature, it kind of gets you into that almost conversational trick by saying, are you really into science? or are you into faith? Already by this sort of question and suggestion presupposing that the two cannot possibly exist together. Now, is that really the case? Is that really the way we should approach science and religion? Is that actually the only way? Well, really not. <laughs> there is another model which is not necessarily too far from this one. It would also say, so here is science, and here is faith. What it would suggest is that, well, they're not really in conflict, but they're also not really overlapping. They're not really sort of having a conversation. This model would suggest that science and faith are completely independent of each other. They are asking different questions and getting different answers. Remember, here we're asking same questions, getting different answers. In the second model, we're asking different questions, getting different answers. Um, this model was co coined as non-overlapping magisteria model by the late paleontologist and uh, kind of popularizer of science, Stephen Jay Gould. So he suggested this non-overlapping magisteria, trying to describe that idea that, you know, science actually, he said, asks questions of facts, Religion asks questions of values. Therefore, they don't really overlap, so we, don't, we can't really talk about conflict, but they don't really talk to each other, so there is not much to discuss. My personal opinion the, about this model is that there are a lot of frailties in this model, too. First of all, first of all, 
so many scientists across centuries of history were drawing inspiration from their religion. So it's not really fair to them and to the history of science, really, as I'm going to show you later, to sort of say that these are completely separate things. And second, and I think just more from my interdisciplinary study, I just can't really see how we can have these separate sort of sealed compartments, which this model suggests science and religion are. Because we are not really those sealed compartmentalized people. Anyone who's ever held the hand of a loved one or saw a beautiful sunset or listened to beautiful music and was touched to tears recognizes that, that we're actually not compartmentalized. A lot of things in us are united. Therefore, I don't really think it's very human and very holistic to approach the question like this. Now, another model is really interesting. It suggests that science and faith are essentially fusing together. They're sort of approaching again the same things and can have this conversation. This model is called fusion model. Sounds kind of fun, fusion, right? And in that fusion model, um, it kind of says, well, we can inf inform science through religion and religion through science, and, you know, they can sort of exist as essentially one. Why is it not necessarily a good idea? Well, actually, there, there, there are attempts to do that. Natural theology is one of the attempts, and the intelligent design movement, uh, which some of you might have heard about. Again, another approach to that. There are a lot of discussions online <laughs> around this topic. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a very good idea because by fusing them together, it first of all kind of suggests that not much dialogue really is necessary. It kind of demolishes the question altogether. But the second problem, what do we do when the conflicts arise? Because there are conflicts. There are problems. There are situations where we, we're looking at, at, at a question and we can't really sort of, you know, simply say they are informing each other. Seems like there are some questions that we really need to wrestle with. And this model is not just giving us space to talk about things. Now, finally, the fourth model, and the one, as you might have guessed, I'm probably more of a proponent of, is the dialogue model. Here is science, here is faith or religion, and they are having a conversation. This is called the dialogue model, right? So just running through them real quick. Here's conflict, here's this non-overlapping magisteria, fusion, and finally, dialogue, the dialogue model. Why am I the proponent of this dialogue model? Why do I think it's really a good idea to talk about science and faith, being able to have a conversation? Because over history, first of all, just looking back into history, thousands and thousands of scientists actually believed that yes, science and faith are looking at the same reality and asking actually sometimes similar and sometimes different questions. But the best way to engage is to actually allow us to draw information from both and let ourselves be inspired through both. Now, if we just go through some of the names of the people who were inspired by, by this idea and approached science and religion in that way, just to name a few. Johann Kepler, famous astronomer. Robert Boyle, the father of chemistry. Louis Pasteur, famous French bacteriologist. Michael Faraday, 
the experimentalist, Sir Isaac Newton, just to name a few. Modern people, modern scientists like Dr. Francis Collins, the Human Genome Project leader, he often talks about that desire to draw that wonder and that power to sort of explore from his faith. And he talks about science actually being inspired by that wonder and desire to worship God who, who created all. Now, there is this very interesting idea, again developed by C.S. Lewis, who was already mentioned today in a slightly different context, that men became scientific because they believed in lawgiver, certain lawgiver. They believed that there is a law and there is a lawgiver. Now, who can tell me when approximately what we perceive today as modern science started? What, what century was that? Scientific revolution? 16th, 16th, 17th century, the sort of kind of the date that uh, would be perceived as that sort of big, you know, push, big explosion of uh, exploration uh, of nature that today is perceived as science. Now, the question is why, right? History of science is often asking this question, why? Why 16th century? What, what happened there? And uh, Thomas Kuhn, who is studying that question of you know, history of science, he has a very interesting approach to that. He says that actually it's not the increase in information that leads to these big paradigm shifts, but the change in thinking change in this paradigm, change in certain approach to things. And um, if you read alongside uh, famous historian Herman Butterfield, um, when he talks about the origins of modern science, he says that that scientific revolution of the 16th century happened in Europe, of all places. And it is very interesting that it happened in Europe, of all places, because it is in Europe, the Christian Europe, that people had a certain set of assumptions that allowed science to begin in the 16th, 17th century. What was that set of assumptions? Well, I've already given you away somewhat by mentioning C.S. Lewis and uh, that whole belief in the lawgiver. Basically, they believed that the universe is knowable. There is something to be discovered. There are certain laws of nature that we can find if we actually can be bothered to look for them. This is a very interesting sort of worldview, which we today take absolutely for granted, but it shouldn't be taken for granted. This worldview is actually an inheritance of Judeo-Christian worldview. The question is, why wouldn't science develop in Greece or in Arabic countries, which have given us beautiful poetry, which have given us philosophy? Why not? Why that whole kind of scientific search started in the Christian Europe. And, and the answer is, again, we can trace that to that belief in rationality behind the universe, belief in the law and the lawgiver who created everything around us with a certain set of laws that we can discover. Now, again, why not Greece? Why not, say, India? Well, let's think of Greek and Hindu gods. For a minute. Let's think of their creation myths for a minute. These are the myths of chaos. These are the stories of fickle, unknowable gods 
And these fickle and unknowable gods, Zeus or Shiva, well, who can know them? They're not really inviting us into a conversation, into that exploration. Compare that to what the Hebrew author of Psalm 19 writes. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. This glorious poem to the beauty of creation, that sense of some kind of great mind behind it. New Testament also affirms it. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 writes about that. He says, for his God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So this whole Judeo-Christian worldview from, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Psalms to the epistles of Paul, are suggesting that there is that great lawmaker, that great creator that can be known and his creation therefore reflects him and can also be known so this is just a little bit of history just a little bit of sort of looking back and kind of seeing how science was birthed to begin with now if scientific atheism which is again propagated in academia so strongly today was actually the primary worldview around 16th 17th century my question is would we actually end up having the science that we know today? Well, let me just read to you a little quote from, again, Professor Dawkins. You might have heard it before. It says, in the universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, genetic replications, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason for it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Are you still with me? My question is, if this was the primary worldview of Europe in the 16th, 17th century, what incentive would people have to go and search for that meaning, search for that rationality? Would this pessimistic view of the universe actually inspire any wonder, any creativity, any curiosity? These are all deeply human questions. This is a deeply, profoundly human question that we're exploring today together. Now, you might say, well, if this is all so simple, <laughs> If this is so obvious, why then we are where we are today? Why then so many people believe that science and religion are in conflict? Why this first model seems to be the sort of model to go to sort of model in, in, in academia, at least in sort of hardcore sciences? Why? Well, let me try to sort of summarize some of the ideas here and um, kind of try to maybe suggest three possible reasons. There, there might be a whole host of reasons, but I, I think there might be three possible big reasons why we are where we are today. And um, two of them are actually certain levels of confusion, I think. One of them, I would say, I would describe it as confusion of understanding of the idea behind the laws 
of nature, right? We're talking about laws tonight a lot. And um, it's actually Ludwig Wittgenstein, a famous linguist, uh, whom I've been reading more in, in the context of linguistics, who actually profoundly inspired me when, when I read this phrase. He says, at the basis of the whole modern view of the world lies this illusion, he says, illusion that the so-called laws of nature are the explanations of the natural phenomena. I'm going to give you a fun example from uh, Professor John Lennox, um, professor of mathematics in Oxford. He often asks this cheeky question. He says, one plus one equals two. <laughs> Great. And then he says, has that ever put two pounds in your pocket? He does that with a beautiful Irish accent, which I cannot copy. Has that ever put two pounds in your pocket? No. No, it hasn't. But this is what Ludwig Wittgenstein says. He says, laws of nature, they explain. They don't create. They explain. They just explain the reality. They describe the reality. They don't create the reality. But today, today, a lot of us are living in this strange illusion that we can actually explain things that are created through these laws. And again, it's, it's not just sort of some people out there in the street thinking that. Professor Stephen Hawking, Cambridge, this is what he writes. He says, because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Shall I say it? Shall I read it again? Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. How is the only question that a lot of physicists have asked Professor Stephen Hawking after reading this statement. How exactly can a law create a universe from nothing? Laws only describe, they don't create. Now, it is kind of ironic that Stephen Hawking in this particular context He's holding the very same professorship at Cambridge that Isaac Newton was holding once. And Isaac Newton, being a believer himself, he actually understood that problem between laws. And he talked, he actually believed that it is precisely the law of gravity that led him to believe in the existence of creator. And it's precisely that very same law of gravity that leads Professor Stephen Hawking not to believe in any shape or form of creator today. I find that very interesting. Now, as I said, three sort of major confusions that we're facing today. Second one, I would say, is probably the confusion of the nature of explanation. Again, what kind of explanations can we give to the reality around us? Oftentimes, there is more than one, more than one. But we sort of take one and, and say this is the only one. Let me give you one example. My um, aunt in, in Moscow, she's professor of physics, Moscow State University. And she, imagine you're coming to Russia. We, we really like tea in Russia, just like people in the UK. So you come to Russia, people are hospitable there. And my aunt invites you for uh, a cup of tea. And, and you see that there, there is a kettle. And, and the water is boiling, and something inspires you to ask this question, why is the water boiling? Well, of course, my aunt can give you a profound answer that any physics professor could give you. She can say something like, well, there is a heat source, and the energy from the heat source is 
transferred into the water, and as this kinetic energy increases, that increases the speed of movement of molecules, and so on and so forth. Thus, the water boils. Is that a good answer? Is that a true answer? Yeah, absolutely. Is that a correct answer? Yes, absolutely. Is that the only answer? No, that's not the only answer because as I come into the same room hearing the same question, I'll say, well, the water is boiling because I wanted to make a cup of tea and share it with you, right? Just because there is a technical explanation of how doesn't mean that there is no answer to the question why, okay? Just because we can explain or sometimes cannot explain how doesn't mean that we should give up altogether the question why. But we do it today quite a lot when it comes to the question of science and religion just because I think there is this big confusion of the nature of explanation. And finally, um, problem number three, sort of reason number three why I think we are where we are today in terms of the perceived conflict between science and religion. I think it's, it's some kind of actually power play that we're facing today. And to sort of um, start on this topic, I would like to say, you know, I think not every statement of a scientist is actually a statement of science, okay? Not every statement of a scientist is a statement of science. But the way we treat those statements, the way you know, the amount of times people say, say to me, well, but, but Professor Dawkins says, and I'm like, yes, and he's, he's a great man, and he's an amazing professor of biology, and I, I really am inspired by a lot of his work, but you can't treat every statement he makes as a statement of science, especially because a lot of those statements are actually statements related more to metaphysical questions rather than science. Therefore, we should be very careful with these kind of questions. Just an example, again, back to Professor Stephen Hawking. He once said a beautiful, uh, interesting thing. He said, religion is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Have you heard this one? People have quoted it quite a lot to me. So they're like, well, yeah, but you know, religion is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Um, and again, um, Professor John Lennox, who is working at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, he just immediately rebutted him in, in one of the conversations he had uh, in that context. He said, well, if, if, if religion is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark, then atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. <laughs> right. Isn't that interesting? What I'm trying to say is that certain kind of arguments cut both ways. How many times have you heard that sort of idea that, well, God is just a psychological crutch. How many times somebody said that to you? Well, you just believe in God because it's, you know, it's convenient for you. It's all, all, all your things that you kind of can't deal with. You're just, you know, it's, it's your psychological crutch. It's your desire for this eternal father. It's your daddy issues. Have you, anyone? Now, this is Freudian argument, essentially, right? This is coming from Freud and kind of that whole idea of, again, desire for this father, this father figure. Now, even that very argument, that Freudian argument, 
it's very interesting. It really cuts both ways. It's a double-edged sword. Because as it suggests that, yes, you only believe in God because you have all these issues, it sort of assumes that there is no God, that there is no creator, there is the universe is this and that way. If you flip it around and for a moment imagine that actually there is a God and the universe has a different set of you know, settings, it immediately turns in on itself by suggesting, well, in that case, your atheism is being afraid of, your, of the light. Your atheism is basically not being willing to stand before that God, is, is running away from that father. <laughs> it's that prodigal instinct in you, is the desire not to face the judgment. You see what I'm saying? You see what I mean here? Certain arguments are too big to sort of just use one way, and they end up being quite a powerful metaphysical force that should really be reckoned with and, and, and discussed in, in more ways than one. Another thing here with all of these different approaches, and uh, I was recently reading a really interesting book, I highly recommend it to you. Uh, it's by Marilyn Robinson called Absence of Mind. Kind of not a very thick book, really, but uh, a lot of that sort of debate between science and religion taken from a more sort of um, modern perspective that uh, we are facing today rather than sort of analyzing the history of it, sort of looking at it from where we are at today. And she says a very interesting thing here. Let me read it to you. She, she sort of um, describes how all of the, actually all of the different approaches to even the question of self are at odds with each other. If we're talking about science, if we're talking about even the question of how would science account for our perception of self, they don't agree. This is a fun thing she says. She says, the Freudian neurasthenic is not the Darwinian primate, who is not the Marxist proletarian, who is not the behaviorist organism available to being molded by a regime of positive and negative sensory experience. And then she says, to acknowledge an element of truth in each of these models is to reject the claims to descriptive sufficiency made by all of them. And in normal English, she basically says, if we see that there is some kind of grain of truth in, in all of them, we, we, we immediately deny them the power of that overwhelming meta-narrative that each one of them is claiming to be. Isn't that fascinating? Even within that science, even within that question of sort of approaching the question of self, there is no agreement. And if we go back to the dialogue model, if we come back here, we see a very interesting thing happening here. We can approach the question of self, we can approach the question of what does it mean to be human from the position of science and look at the answers that can be provided to us by biology, by anthropology, by psychology. And then we can come to this, to faith and religion, and ask the same question, what does it mean to be human? And come to it from the position of, what does God think of you? What does it mean to be created in his image? What is your purpose? What is the meaning of your life? And are these questions any less important? I don't think so. I really, really don't think so. Now, we don't have too much time left, but there are a couple more things that I would like to sort of raise before we finish and sort of wrap up uh, and move into the discussion time. And one of those is sort of, again, come back to the question, has science buried God? Right? Simple question. Has it or has it not? 
on the surface looks like it has. But again, just for a second, I'm going to read to you a quote from Charles Darwin, of all people. This is what Charles Darwin was writing about human mind. That very instrument we're using to do science with. This is what he says. He says, but then with me the horrid doubt always arises when the convictions, whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or are at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? And the reason I'm taking you this direction is to show you that actually it is not that science has killed God. In some sense, if we take all of these ideas to their logical conclusion, and there is a lot that has been written on it, it's not that science is burying God. Science is actually burying atheism. John Gray, professor, um, former professor at the London School of Economics, was talking about how modernism and that whole humanism, that idea of we are the measure of everything, man is the measure of all things, you know. He says that modern humanism is basically that faith that through science, humankind can, can be free, can sort of set ourselves free, can know the truth, be set free through that. But then he says if Darwin's theory of natural selection is actually true, this is impossible. Because human mind serves evolutionary success and not truth. You see, the universe did not, did not sort of come into existence so that we could find truth. It didn't, we didn't evolve in order to find truth. Truth is a very ethereal thing. There is nothing to discover out there. In that sense, I think it's a pretty hopeless idea and a pretty hopeless picture. And sadly, it is actually leading us to the hopelessness we're facing today, especially in, in my generation. People today who live without that sense of meaning, without that sense of hope, the apathy that I'm facing every day, uh, my workplaces and places where I study. Ray Bradbury, one of my favorite writers, he, in one of his books, said this. He said, we are an impossibility in an impossible universe. An impossibility in an impossible universe. And with all of this amazing progress that science has given us, and I would be the very last person to deny it, or the very last person to actually say anything against science. I love science. Science is so exciting. But with all of the good that science has given us, sadly it has also led us to believe that we don't really have much value. We don't really have much purpose, and there's not much meaning for our lives. And this is very sad because the science that I believe in, the science that actually can have a conversation with a larger picture out there, can engage with the question why and not only the question how, I think that science today, and there is a lot of that science out there, is actually recognizing something that the Bible has actually mentioned long time ago. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God, writes John, about the beginning of all things. Do you know what that means in scientific terms? 
information before matter. In the beginning was the word. Information before matter. And I don't have a lot of time to sort of engage with, with that whole question. It's not even really the area of my personal expertise, but a lot of research today is actually focusing on that search of information and suggests that, indeed, information might have come before matter. Let's get back to the stars, shall we? How many stars are there in the universe? A trillion billion. One with how many zeros? If I invited one of you to join me up here on the stage and I gave you this pen and I said, why don't you come here and draw something that would describe your value and your importance compared to the size of the universe? What would you draw? What would you draw? A dot. I think you have just overstated <laughs> your importance for a couple billion times. <laughs> because if this is the size of the universe, I don't think there is anything we would be able to draw on this piece of paper to describe our importance in terms of that sheer size. However, if I told you that just one simple fact from, you know, dozens of facts that come under the umbrella of what is called fine-tuning argument for God's existence, just one fact which says that actually if the size of the universe would be any significantly smaller than it is today, a simple element called carbon would not be able to be formed as everything sort of came to be in the Big Bang. Carbon. Does that ring any bell? What importance is carbon to you? Life. We are carbon-based life forms. You said that. <laughs> I did not define you. <laughs> we are carbon-based life forms. And no carbon-based life form could ever exist in this universe unless there was a trillion billion stars that you observe every day. And the way I would like to finish is just imaginatively to say, to ask you actually, what would God draw on this piece of paper if I invited him <laughs> on this stage and gave him this pen and asked him, how important are these people in this room compared to the size of the universe? I cannot speak for God, but my imaginative guess would be that he would draw something like this. Because I think this is how important you are to God. This is how precious you are to God. This is how valuable you are to God. And don't let anyone tell you that this is not true. Thank you so much for listening so carefully, for being so attentive.
Thank you. Before we move into a little bit of a Q&A session and discussion time, which I promised you I won't be the only one speaking tonight, um, I would like to just tell you that this is a great thing called Alpha. Uh, what is life about is the question. And I know that this particular church, St. Xavier's, is starting this sort of discussion club sort of next week, right? And it's going to run for seven weeks. And if you enjoy, those of you who've been here all three times as, as we were sort of discussing these important questions, if you enjoy this, if you enjoy this type of engagement, if you like these open questions where everyone is given a chance to ask, to sort of, you know, use that gift of curiosity and wonder, and, and no one gets sort of boxed in any particular shape or form. Everyone can sort of air their views and, and discuss these important questions. This is for you. Seriously, sign up, definitely come. There will be dinner every night for those of you who like free food. Everyone likes free food, right? So <laughs> please do come along. There are these invitations on every table. And um, how are we going to do Q&A, Mike? Are we going to collect some of the questions or shall we just get people sort of be brave and... Sorry? Uh-huh. Great. What are we expecting to see there? The author, the human author, whoever he was, was not necessarily engaging with the question of how. The human author had a very different purpose. The human author of the book of Genesis, for instance, was trying to show us that all of these different creation accounts around Mesopotamia, which were claiming that the sun was the god, the stars were the god, the sea was the god, or whatever else in creation was actually the god, the mother or the father, sort of, that has given birth to us, was actually not god. Whoever the author, the human author, again, of the book of Genesis was, he was trying to show us that all of these things are part of creation. And it seems like this was the main purpose of it, if we look at the account holistically in the context of things. Now, why we're expecting to see certain things about evolution in it today is certainly a very different question. I think it's, again, probably certain framing of mind that we develop um, through very modernist <laughs> approach to reality. I don't necessarily think uh, it's very helpful. A lot of people argue, a lot of Christians, sadly, argue uh, about all of these, you know, six days, seven days, uh, age long. Uh, what was that? Was that literal, non-literal? Again, don't have a lot of time to engage with that, sadly, but if you're interested in that, again, John Lennox has this very interesting book called uh, Seven Days That Divided the World, <laughs> and you can in a very accessible way, kind of go through all of the different arguments for and against and see that actually there's not much to argue about. There, there is a lot to have a conversation about, dialogue about, but we shouldn't really argue about those things. What is a good question to ask a dogmatic atheistic scientist? This is a very good question. I, I appreciate your heart, whoever asked this question. I think it's very good to sort of think of like actually a question because, you know, I just find it 
fascinating. Uh, when I moved to the United States, um, I saw this kind of bumper sticker quite a lot, which said, Jesus is the answer. <laughs> I don't know, have you seen those? I haven't seen those here. But in the States, I saw that a lot. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And the only thing that kept kind of coming up in me was, what is the question? <laughs> but what is the question? And I think so often we sort of try to shove something down people's throats <laughs> this like, you know, vigor and passion and zeal um, without really asking, what is the person's question? What are they really curious about? And I think, uh, obviously, I can't tell you specifically, this is a good question for all times to ask uh, someone who is dogmatic or atheistic or scientific <laughs> or whatever else they are. I think a good thing is to listen and to really hear what their questions are and ask a question of their questions. The best questions are the questions that we pose to other people's questions. There's this joke about an old rabbi who was asked, um, he said, why do you always ask, answer questions with a question? To which he said, why shouldn't I answer a question with a question? <laughs> so um, that probably doesn't really answer this question, but <laughs> I think that's a very good strategy, so feel free to employ it. <laughs> if you had a daughter that had just started science lessons at school, what three questions would she um, or should she ask her teacher to challenge them or help her understand an understanding of just not just the how but the why mm. that's a very good good answer if i had a daughter i don't have a daughter one day i probably will but um i think again when it comes to these kind of contexts like classrooms and of course there's so much again i'm not quite aware in terms of the legal system here in the UK and how it's been happening and developing, but of course in the US there's been so many court cases uh, with <laughs> the question of evolution kind of coming coming into play. I don't necessarily think that this is a very good witness. I don't necessarily think that this is a very helpful way of approaching things. I think Christians can be as dogmatic as certain atheists can be sometimes. And actually, that first model that I talked about, a lot of Christians actually think that this is the model to go with, that science and religion have nothing to do with each other, and therefore we should just all huddle up in our holy huddle and stay on one side of, of this debate as far <laughs> as we can uh, from engaging with things. So if I had a daughter, I wouldn't probably train her in three questions that you should ask your teacher of evolution. I probably would say, try to engage, try, try to learn as much as you can from all of these, you know, facts, because so much of it is fascinating, so, so much of it is true, probably, so much of it is kind of going to broaden your horizon, and from there, try to sort of, you know, ask your three questions. Um, this is probably a question that if we have some one-on-one, -on -one, you can come up to me and we can chat about it more. I can't really read this one. <laughs> um, so if somebody can come and help me, that would be great. Why do you say that non-religious view of science has to be without joy or wonder? Great question. Thank you for asking it. It gives me a chance to clarify. I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying actually that non-religious view of science has to be without joy or wonder. If I gave an impression that that's what I mean, that's not what I mean. I know a lot of fascinating, amazing, beautiful scientists, people who actually are non-religious and they have some level of wonder and joy, of course, great joy in, in the exploration that they're having. What I'm saying is that there is that pattern or trend 
in our thinking today, in, in our sort of culture, actually, that is leading us to that wonderless, bleak existence, that sort of meta-narrative that we can explain it all away. And that is, I think, well, it is reduction, reductionist materialism. That's what it is. And that is a wonderless and joyless worldview. And uh, those scientists, that's, what, that, that's one thing I do mean. Those scientists who are actually proponents of that sort of worldview of this reductionist materialism, my experience in, in those particular friendships has been that they don't have really much joy about anything. And I can't really remember right now, but there is one particular person who was um, from that particular worldview uh, who was asked, how, how, do you, how do you engage with that? How, how do you live your life with that? What, what, do you, what do you say to your wife? You can't even say to your wife, I love you when you come back home, because what is love, right? Other than just a certain release of certain chemicals in your brain. And he was like, well, you just kind of have to kind of live with that. <laughs> that was very sad. Um, ah, great. Oh, someone very kindly. <laughs> Where does science and faith share the most common ground? Where is the conversation closest? Mm. That's, that's a good question. I don't necessarily think, of course, I'm very biased. So if you ask me personally, I would say the brain, <laughs> the mind. So much of the conversation today is about the mind. So much of the conversation today, fascinating studies, fascinating research on connection, how we're actually wired for connection. I have one of, one of the talks I do is actually on trinity and connection. Just the way we're cognitively, physically wired for connection and, and what kind of, you know, insights we can gain from the idea of triune God in, in Christianity. I think that's fascinating. I personally think that this is the closest. But then you, you talk to my physics major friend and they'll say, come on, you know, the waves, the, you know, all, all of these beautiful ideas. You, you talk to uh, someone who's studying music, they'll give you a very, very different approach. So I, I really think... It was Albert Einstein who actually said that the cradle of all science and all art is wonder. Wonder. And we don't really know whether Einstein was a believer or not. <laughs> all sorts of people try to claim him for themselves. If you just go online, there is this whole fight going on over whether he was a believer or not. But, but wonder is the cradle of, of all of that kind of human exploration. And I think in that sense, uh, it can be really connected with any... Uh, any of the areas of exploration. Given that the universe is infinite, it is a certain that somewhere in it alien life <laughs> forms must exist. What would, um, what would make them any less God's crown of creation than we are? That's a great question. That is a really good question. So yeah, let's, yeah. So given that the universe is so big, and it is very big, as we have uh, talked about today, um, we can possibly imagine that, that there are some aliens out there. Why would, be, why would they be any less cool, <laughs> important to God than we are? Um, I don't know if they would be really <laughs> any less important to God than we are. I think, again, it is the question of how do we interpret that whole crown of creation. And I think, actually, don't get me wrong, when we read the Genesis account, there is, of course, that huge, beautiful stress of, of us being special, 
creation. And then there's that, that term of special creation is, is used a lot in actually the whole discussion of you know, science and religion debate. But I think uh, oftentimes we actually take it and abuse it. And I think what happened in, in history, in our very actually recent history, was a terrible abuse on our own planet of that whole idea of being a special creation. Being a special creation, actually, in, if you read Genesis in its context, means taking care of the rest of the creation means having a very special responsibility, not very special rights. But what we did instead, we just took everything we could, used and abused the creation, and did that all under the banner of being very special. I don't think that's what was meant <laughs> in the book of Genesis. I personally believe that the way God made us was to bless the creation, to enrich the creation, to take care of creation. Now. If we take that approach to what it means to be the crown of creation, well, I don't know. If there was some sort of life form out there, would that challenge that specialness, <laughs> if I may say so, of, of our place in God's heart? No, I don't think so. I don't think that that would be any challenge. Again, I think C.S. Lewis, in some ways, is a genius and a prophet, really. If you read his beautiful Chronicles of Narnia and the way he talks about all these sort of different worlds as Aslan was creating and, and all the different ways, is that a possibility? Well, imaginatively, we may say so, but there's no proof whatsoever so far, so I think this kind of question is more of a question of engagement of our imagination rather than engagement of our rationality, okay? People can make allegories about certain stories in the Old Testament. For example, Jonah in a whale for three days is a prologue to Jesus in the tomb. How can we decipher between which story is an allegory and what is scientifically accurate? This is a really, really, really good question. Um, I don't necessarily know if I have necessarily the right and the context to speak fully into this question, but I think my personal experience with it has been engaging with the text, engaging with the text in a deep and serious way. Not just taking words and phrases and approaching them with this bumper sticker, you know, way of treating things. But actually, again, going back to the genre, going back to the context, going back into the meaning. When we talk about the flood story, right? Has the flood happened? Or not. There's so many approaches to it. There's so many Christians, again, fighting over whether that was a worldwide flood or in a particular place. How, like, were they all the animals in that ark in the creation? My question is, how important is that, really? Can we sometimes actually be agnostic about whether that is a certain level of metaphor, allegory, or this is like an exact description of how things happen. If we go back to that whole story of Noah's Ark, what is the story telling us? What is the story trying to teach us? When we talk about metaphor, back to language, we all understand metaphors, but metaphors always stand for reality. When Jesus says, I am the door, do we know whether this is uh, an allegory and we need to decipher it or we should go and try to find the handle. Seems pretty obvious, right? He's not made of wood, and there is no handle in there. However, when he says, I am the door to the sheep, what does he mean? He actually means something. He means something very, very profound. 
Is it a real meaning? Yes, it is. Is it a real message? Yes, it is. And so I think when we come to a lot of those stories, it can be both end, you know. It could have been that this is a very particular event in history, but it's also communicating something very important. And actually, um, the book I mentioned today, um, Absence of Mind, Marilyn Robinson talks about the flood story. And in, in the flood story, uh, she, said, she, she kind of raises that whole question of whether we should really fight over whether it was worldwide or it was in a one particular place because so many myths, uh, Mesopotamian myths, would be actually describing that very similar event. And I, I actually, whenever I read it, I wonder when it talks about the whole world, you know, in that particular context, that particular culture, would treat the whole known world in a very particular way. Still, like if we go to tribal cultures today, the whole known world to them would be the place where they live. So it's just kind of, again, I'm not suggesting there's one way or the other, it's just throwing it out there. However, Marilyn Robinson would ask a very important question in that book. She would say, what is the story teaching us? What is the story teaching us? And she says, so many people fail to notice how in the flood story it is the lion and the lamb <laughs> lying next to each other in that very saving ark. And then somehow later on, we see that very imagery again. The lion and the lamb will lie next to each other. They will not hurt each other through that saving ark again. Do we see that when we read those stories? Or do we focus on the immediate and start fighting over words rather than seeing the message. I think this is kind of the best way I can <laughs> engage with it at this point. How much time do we have left? Okay, another few minutes. <laughs> Very existential question. Why do people not believe in God? <laughs> I love it. Some philosophers in here tonight. I love it. This is cool. This is, this is the question I'm asking myself every day. <laughs> as I wake up, because otherwise I don't know why, why I would be doing what I'm doing rather than sitting in the lab. But why do people not believe in God? Really, why? I think um, this book actually has something to say about that. And it says that because our deeds were evil, we shut our hearts away and we turned our eyes away from the author of light. And I think, I don't know, when, when I just, I, did, I wasn't raised in a Christian family at all. My grandmother is Muslim, my grandfather is an atheist, like really, you know, kind of aggressive type. My dad is agnostic, my mom was profoundly confused, so that was kind of <laughs> context I was growing up in. Um, and I actually, when, when I was seven, I, I was exploring, I was kind of looking into different worldviews through my teenage years, but it was uh, when I met um, a Christian when I was 16, going 17, and, and they said something very interesting, they described this kind of <laughs> The, the answer, their version of answer to this question. And they said, Marie, you see, it's like if there is some source of light, some kind of lamp out in the street, you know, and, and two people come up to, to this lamp and both of them look very dirty and very shabby, there can be only two kinds of responses. One can come up and say, oh my goodness, I'm so dirty, my clothes are so shabby, I just really need to go take a shower and change, you know, all of that stuff or something better and cleaner. And the other response can be, oh my goodness, I'm so dirty. My clothes are so shabby. I just need to go back into the dark because nobody will see me there. And I think essentially, in a very maybe simple, if not simplistic way, I think that that kind of story, in a, in a sense, is engaging with two kinds of motivation, two kinds of hearts, two kinds of responses. Because if there is a God, <laughs> if there is a God, and if there are those of you today here who are... Who 
who are engaging with this question are asking, is there a God? I think there, there are very good reasons to believe that there is a God, and I invite you to actually, with this particular event happening in the next seven weeks, to come and explore those reasons. Are they actually that good? You know, come and explore those reasons. But if there is a God, and he is actually inviting you into that light, I think it's, it's, worth, it's worth engaging and it's worth asking those questions. Has there ever been a flood? Okay, that's, we already kind of engaged with that. Is there any evidence that Jesus did miracles? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it sort of ties into what I've just said already about um, the question of reasons to believe, good reasons to believe. So when it comes to miracles, of course, with our modern kind of approach to things, miracles sound like something very strange, something, you know, kind of slightly unbelievable. But again, back to the idea of the lawmaker, if, if there is some kind of creator behind the universe, the lawmaker, someone who is the author of all these laws, it wouldn't really be the breaking of the laws rather than sort of engaging with those laws if he wanted to sort of do something different. It's really interesting, again, C.S. Lewis, the way he writes on miracles in his book called Miracles. <laughs> There's a really <laughs> good connection there. Um, he engages with that question. He says, actually, if you look at the miracles that Jesus was creating in the New Testament, all of them are actually not explainable, but they're, they're making sense. He says none of them are those kind of weird, spooky ones that you see again in all sort of cultures claiming to do miracles around the world where, you know, there would be those uh, trees walking around and, you know, sort of like kind of beastly things happening. He says, like, if you take the simple one of like turning water into wine, he says eventually, <laughs> you know, you can turn water into wine by water kind of going to the ground and feeding into that wine and kind of creating those grapes and the grapes eventually becoming the wine. He sort of kind of approaches that in, in that maybe slightly imaginative, interesting way, but I think that that's a fun way of engaging with it. I think if we are trying to ask that question of, is there proof that Jesus made miracles? Well, of course, there is, like, you can't really go into some uh, museum or some lab, and there's that kind of, you know, pipette or whatever, whatever like some Petri dish, and you're like, oh, that there's, there's some proof that Jesus did miracles. However, if we engage with, well, let's say, the biggest miracle, which the Christians in this room would say is his resurrection. I personally think there is very, very good proof and very, very good reason to believe that this actually happened because first of all, there is actually historical mention of that resurrection or at least the kind of events that happened around that resurrection, which coincide with the description in the gospels. And the second more important thing, somebody wrote once about the fact of the early church, the early Christian church in the first century, boosting, just that was this big bang, just coming into existence out of nowhere. And they said, what explains this little group of losers, literally, sorry, but that's how the Christian church was starting, this little group of losers, scared, if you read the book of Acts, exciting book, highly recommend, sitting up there in that room, shaking, not wanting to leave the room knowing that, you know, the Romans are out there to hunt them as the followers of Jesus. What changed that little group of scared little people, fishermen, and changed them into the wild, wild bunch, thousands, thousands, and thousands of people who wouldn't hold back anything, their own lives, out of the 12 disciples, 11 died terrible, violent deaths. Why? 
And this historian actually in particular, he said, in order to explain the acts of the early Christian church, you need a very big why, the other way around. In order to explain the big why, you need a very big X. You basically need to sort of have some, some really good reason. And he said, outside of the idea that the resurrection was actually what happened in that particular context, there's no way to explain what historically happened in, in the first century with the early Christian church. And really, I mean, there really is no way to explain it. Um, and the final question, you said that science is disproving atheism. How is that possible when atheism doesn't make any claims? Good question. Um, but this is debatable. Because it depends on what kind of atheism you, of course, are engaging with, just like what kind of Christianity you're engaging with. There are all sorts of people, also all sorts of approaches. When it comes to Christianity, at least there is a way to sort of find the common ground. And yeah, I know there will be some people <laughs> disagreeing with that. But there is, there is a text that you can come to and sort of base uh, it on something. When it comes to atheism, unfortunately, all sorts of um, ideas out there. And a lot of those ideas are actually making very profound claims. Yes. I will take this and correct <laughs> this in my talk from now and I'll say atheists. Because atheism as a concept, it is a denial of any particular beliefs. Atheists, as people, are making very profound claims which perhaps are walking a long way away from one particular concept. But that concept in many ways is inspiring. As, as I said, there are certain logical conclusions. But um, we won't take time from other people if you want to engage a bit more on this question one-on-one -on -one, let's do that afterwards ladies and gentlemen thank you so much <laughs> i love the way you engage today um if you have any more questions i have maybe another five eight minutes before i have to go and catch my train back to oxford but it's been an absolute and utter pleasure to be with you tonight and uh, i really hope that you enjoyed the three weeks that rzn was with you and i hope that you will enjoy the seven week course that is coming next week thank you and have a good night <laughs>